There's a lot of symbolism in that. Yeah, I love I love planting and I love flowers and I why do, do you, that. Why do you over out, always outdo me? <laughs> My people do really well, don't My they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear that we we discovered recently what your people are called. I, I heard that too. I mean, from your planet. I mean, assuming you have a planet. Yeah, assuming I do. It's very suspicious, mm -hmm. isn't it? So you'll be having an unveil on that soon. Yeah, when that's I hear <laughs> that you're going to be launching your new website for you and your people, which will go live on May Day, May 1st, May right? 1st. Uh -huh. So that'll be something to circle our calendars and get ready for. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I've we have seen some big plans. work in process. It's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. It'll impact people's lives. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh, <laughs> We have the eclipse coming on April 8th, mm -hmm. and Joshua shared with us a little bit about the Missouri, which is really the Arkansas eclipse watch, but we also have two more already on the calendar, so other parents are planning other watches in other parts of the country because the swath of where the eclipse will appear goes clear across the United States. Mm -hmm. So the two other locations we have watch parties for right now are in the parent uh, newsletter, and you really ought to check that. You still have time if you want to do one in your area. It can be informal, a small one. Just find a place where you know, you're going to see the eclipse in totality, preferably, and announce it, and people are at, we have Celis parents and families and students everywhere. Everywhere, so yeah. It's really fun. You'll be surprised. You may find out that your next door neighbor <laughs> is on the cell. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's been happening. It's fun. And, and Tobias, do you hear that new letter of the alphabet? Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's going to ruin a lot of songs. <laughs> but uh, I have always been very impressed with this scientist, Mendeleev, and the periodic table. Uh, when I was in the third grade, I became enamored with the periodic table. And I set for myself a goal of memorizing every element, its symbol, and its atomic number. So I memorized all of those. It didn't help me get a lot of friends in the third grade, <laughs> but it was a fun thing to do. Uh, what Tobias didn't get into yet, but I think it'd be fun to say a little bit about, Remember, he took these elements and he went across the table and then he did another row and all of the elements in one of the columns or groups as he called them have similar chemical properties. What Tobias didn't tell us is why. Why do they all have similar properties? What's making them behave like they are? Why could he predict that there's another one in the middle? And the answer happens to have to do with the electron clouds, the electrons going around that particular nucleus. Remember, hydrogen has just a proton particle in the middle of the atom, and then it has one electron zooming around. And then helium has two protons and two electrons. They have to be the same number because the charge cancels out, okay? But the interesting thing is, the properties come from those electrons in the outer cloud of that particular element. And you say cloud, uh, in, in chemistry, in starting with the, I think, the Bohr atom model, we learned to call them shells. And the reason we call them shells is because you fill up one shell, which is one layer of electrons floating around, and then you build another shell around that and another shell around that. And when an atom is here and it wants to get into a chemical reaction with another atom, the way it behaves depends on how many electrons are in the outer shell. So these outer shells, except for the real small atoms, have eight electrons that can fit in the shell but some only have one in the outer shell, two, three, four, five electrons. Some have six, some have seven. If you have seven electrons in the outer shell, the electrons aren't very happy because there's too much space and they kind of rattle around, so they're ready to react with another element. And if that element happens to have 
just one electron in the outer shell. They join together and they share those outer shell electrons so they get up to eight, which is the magic number where it's stable. And the way electrons fit in these orbitals, it's stable if there are eight of them. Hmm. So what if you did have some element that just happened to have eight electrons in the outer shell? What would it be like? And the answer is, it, it would be stuck up. <laughs> it, it wouldn't want to react with anybody. You want to react? I don't. <laughs> Do you want to dance? No. Why not? Because I'm completely fulfilled just being with myself. <laughs> and that's true. And, and that whole list of elements that are like that, we call the noble gases, like that argon. And argon, uh, we use argon when we weld. If you weld on a piece of metal and get the torch really hot because you're melding a piece of metal to, to join it together, it gets so hot that it oxidizes the metal, reacts with air, and it kind of corrodes it. So in some fancy torches, they shoot argon out with the flame, and the argon covers the weld, pushing the air away, so it doesn't corrode while it's hot. Because neat. argon doesn't want to react with anybody. And you have that whole column of things that react that way. Now, if you get over to a place like chlorine, where you have just one electron involved, it's very reactive. It's just as you know, this electron in my outer shell is just a pain. Will someone please take it? <laughs> and when they take it, they take it in a way they hook together and share it. It's interesting. That is neat. The periodic table is something that everybody should fall in love with. Yeah? There's so many science fair projects you can do with a periodic table. And you want to think about it. I love it. And you learn all about it in chemistry. And we just hired a wonderful new chemistry teacher joining our team uh, just today. Really? Yep. It's getting better and bigger and better. That's neat. Is it a girl mm -hmm. or a guy? She is a lady. She is a lady. Yes. Oh, and she's sharp. Yeah, she's really sharp. Speaking of the science fair, um, some people may do a science fair project around the solar eclipse. I mean, it's an event. It's rare. It's neat. It's magical. Remember, some guy did a science fair project and discovered that Einstein's theory of relativity was true, that was a really great science fair project, okay? <laughs> so you're probably wondering, what would be a good science fair project for the eclipse? Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard a rumor yeah. that R51 <laughs> is doing a science fair project regarding the solar eclipse, and let's check in with him right now. So he said, hey, 51, what's up? Well, hello, guys. Uh, my name's R51, and I came to tell you that I've been working on the science fair, and I'm pretty sure this time I'm going to win first place because I'm going to discover the eclipse of the sun. Now, here's my hypothesis. You see, you have the sun. It's this big, yellow, bright, shining ball, right? And then you have the Earth. The Earth is this green ball. Well, you see, this is how it works. You have the Earth, and I figured it out. This, the eclipse helped me figure it out. The sun goes around the Earth. No. Not everybody knows no brother. that. brother. It's kind of a surprise. <laughs> and, and there's even a bigger surprise, because the Earth isn't round, it's actually flat. Oh. <laughs> it soon goes around it. And I'm going to study the eclipse and see if it's true. Oh, brother. I got this so that I can see the sun during the eclipse. Wait a minute. If you use that to look at the sun, you will disintegrate your eyes. <laughs> Man, there's something wrong with that guy. 
Yeah, but that's Isn't true. It? They count. That, yeah. that would really hurt the eyes. Guys, no matter where you are, we do, do not look at the sun with a magnifier, <laughs> nor do we look at the yeah. sun without a magnifier. Please, please enjoy the experience, but it's dangerous. And so the only way you can look at the sun during the eclipse, when there's any of the yellow showing around the edge of it, is if you have the special solar glasses. And you can get those a lot of places. They're solar eclipse glasses. When you look at them, they look like they're a piece of metal. And you think, I'll never be able to see through them. But you put them up between you and the sun, and you can see it. It's quite interesting. There is another way that I like to look at the sun. And you don't have to wait for the eclipse to do this. You can do this anytime. Did you notice that Mr. R51 had a big magnifying yeah. lens, mm -hmm. magnifying glass? If you take a magnifying glass, a lot of you know that you can focus the sun on wood chips and start a fire because it'll concentrate the sun so much that it will ignite the fire. But did you all know what else you can do with it? You can move it a little farther away from the wood chips and remove the wood chips and put a piece of white paper there. And you move the lens far enough away and it will invert the sun's image and display it in sharp detail on the piece of paper like it's projected there. You can actually look at that and see the sunspots and everything else. If you haven't done that, you should. It could be a little lens, it could be a big lens, it wouldn't matter, a little one worked fine. And if you get it too close, it'll burn. That means you focused it right on that point. Move it out farther and there'll be a focal point and then the, the rays will spread out and you'll see an image. And it's a neat thing to behold. You can do that, but don't look directly at the sun unless you have adequate eye protection. You really can do serious damage to your eyes. So let's enjoy the eclipse. Now when, if you happen to be right in the middle of the path, so you see the eclipse in totality, and there's no yellow crown around the sun, and this is the kind of eclipse where that can actually happen because of the closeness of the moon to the earth, then for those few minutes, it is dark. You can even see stars around the sun, which is kind of fun. So enjoy the eclipse and have a good time. Okay? It's really neat. Okay. Do you have something you want to say about that? Mm -mm. Do you have anything you want to say about 51? He needs your social He's class. He's pretty pouty. <laughs> Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so... I, uh, I was thinking about science fair and how it's getting close and a lot of people are going to enter a lot of nice prizes this year. And boy, when MIT told us that they take students that have a good GPA, yes. If they take honors classes, that really helps. But if you've done well in a science fair, they really pay attention to that when they're giving out scholarships. And remember, my whole science career was launched building the first hydrogen car for the high school science fair. You just never, ever know where this might go. So I really encourage you to get involved in the science fair, okay? But I, I wanted to see if I could illustrate an example of a project that I did after I was out of high school, but I kind of applied the principles of science to solve a problem. And the thing about it is it's not so complicated and magical. The scientific method can be used in just all sorts of things you're going to encounter throughout your lives. So I brought today a keyboard, and I want to give you a, a shot. You can see here, this is a, a computer keyboard, and this is taken off of the Billings FD computer system. This is the keyboard from the computer that I built right out of college, starting the Billings Computer Corporation. This is how I became financially independent, is building this early computer. Now, I want to kind of take you back in time with me and see if you can kind of see the world as I did at the time. Why did I get involved in the computer industry? Well, it started when I read about the Intel microprocessor. It was a, a chip called the 8080A, a microprocessor. It was a whole computer in one single electronic chip. 
And I saw that that was going to change the world. I saw that now everybody would be able to have, afford to have their own computer. So you wouldn't have to have just a mainframe that everybody shares. You could actually have your own. And so I thought, what an opportunity as this new technology is coming out to see if I can envision how it's going to catch on. What people would do, if everybody had a computer, what would they want to do? And how could you accomplish it? And so I started down this path. And <clears throat> the thing that immediately became apparent to me <clears throat> is that people are going to want to share information. They're going to want to send information from one computer to, the, to another. And if, if two computers have a program and one program's called send and the other one's called receive, I can then get a connection between our computers and I can hit send, you can hit receive, and we can send data from one to the other. But boy, you have to say receive right at the same time I say send, and you've got to have the very person you're trying to send to just sitting there waiting to start saying receive. And I thought that's not practical. Not if everybody has a computer. So there's got to be a way that we can just make this all work. And so any information anywhere could be accessed by anybody as long as they have the right permission. That was, that was my dream. And I started drawing up all kinds of designs. And one day I used fruit to figure out how to do it. <laughs> and all these different ideas until I had, on a Saturday afternoon, what I call my aha or breakthrough moment. And all of a sudden, I saw something that I think was probably the most exciting technological idea moment that I've, I've ever lived, even more so than when I got the idea of running cars on hydrogen. Mm. And what was it? I was thinking about, okay, everybody's got a computer. Everybody's got a computer. They all want to share information, but they can't because it's just too complicated. They've got to be sending and receiving at the same time. And then I got an idea. What if we make two kinds of computers, not just one? The one kind that was obvious to me was the computer for a person. And with a, a computer dedicated to you, you have a screen, you have a keyboard, you can talk to your computer and interact. It just, it's, it's your computer slave. It works just for you. But then we need a second kind of computer. And the second kind of computer doesn't work for you, doesn't work for anybody. It just is like a library. It's a place that receives, stores data, and gives it back out to other people. And it's always just waiting for someone to try to connect with it. And I called that computer a, a data center data center. That was my name that I conjured up. And I eventually filed a patent on it and received the, the U.S. patent uh, for a data center. And so it was two kinds of computers. One was what I called the user computer. That'd be like a personal computer. It's a computer to interact with one user. And then the data center computer, which would be available, it wouldn't have a user, but it would take, it would talk to all the user computers from everybody. I remember I was trying to explain this. This is clear back in the mid-1970s when all we really had was mainframes. And I was saying, so everybody's going to have their own computer. And most of the experts says, no, that'll never happen. I said, yeah, they've got these <laughs> chips. They make, yeah, those chips don't have enough power to really do anything. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And so we're going to have these user computers. And then we're going to have the second kind of computer, the data centers, and they're going to uh, store the data for everybody. And they said, well, who's going to run that computer? I said, no one. They just run themselves. They just run 24 hours a day. And you can go store data or get it back. Well, today, those, that second kind of computer we call file servers, servers. So you have user computers and servers. And user computers, if you turn them off because you're not using it, that's fine because it won't bother anybody. If you just let it sit there and, and say, do not disturb, it goes to sleep while you do, it's only there to take care of you. 
But the server never sleeps. It's always sitting there waiting. There must be a user computer somewhere that's going to need something. And so it made it possible so that every computer in the planet can share information with any other computer. And looking back on it, it just seems kind of obvious. Looking forward, I had a dickens of a time convincing people. I unveiled this concept at the National Computer Conference, which happened to be held in Dallas, Texas. And I got a big booth, and I went in there, and I had it working. And I demonstrated, and I told people about it, and I had a podium there, and I these big mobs of people. Every time I give my presentation, we gather around. And they just shook their heads. It'll never work. It'll never happen. The only personal computer that existed that day on planet Earth was the Billings computer. Uh, Apple had come out with a little thing you hook up to your TV and play games on your TV. That wasn't really a personal computer. It was certainly the beginning of a great company that built many personal computers. But that day, there was only one. And the only reason I had it was because I could see what we could do with these. Now, why could I see it and they couldn't? Yeah, why? And the answer is because I looked. I said, I want to see where this is going to go. This little chip is going to make computers so affordable, everybody can afford one. And when we have that, what's going to happen? What are people going to want? If I can figure out what's going to happen, I can get ready and I can build a user computer and I can figure out how to share these and, and it'll be... It'll be a game changer. And so I sat and I thought and I tried and I found a solution. And it really is fun because I literally got a patent on the concept of user computers or personal computers and servers. And that patent was immediately judged to be worth $1 billion. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a lot of people started fighting me on it because um, a lot of money was involved, an awful lot of money, and everybody infringed it. Everybody infringed it. The whole internet infringes it. That means they used it? That, that means infringed. they used it without a license and they needed to pay royalties. And uh, uh, I'll tell you what, it was an interesting experience trying to enforce that patent which was my right to do. I invented it, I got the patent, and literally, I spent $3 million enforcing that patent, but the opponents, these big giant companies all over the world spent many, 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 many millions of dollars stalling out my attorneys and things and running out the patent. Now, I, I made good money off that patent, but not like it should have been. And it just shows that uh, <clears throat> when you have something that has that much value, you're going to get a lot of opposition. Because before people will part with their money, they'll give you a real fight. For me, though, it was okay because I was a little screwy. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why R51, when they made that copy, is a little screwy. Because I was a little screwy because I wasn't so much into making a lot of money. I was into making a system that would really work, so I didn't really care too much. And uh, I, I think it's made my life a lot more enjoyable that I'm, I'm not trying to get wealthy, I'm trying to make the people on the planet I love be able to live fulfilling lives. But that, you know what, what it was about. like because you did that when you were in your 20s, right? I'm still in my 20s. What are you saying? <laughs> what are you implying? Young Entrepreneur Month and all these front page magazines and you, yeah. Yeah, well anyway, Fastest growing company. Really <laughs> on a tangent. But the, the thing that I wanted to, to bring in today, because uh, I'm at a point looking back at some of the things I've done and say that was really fun. But I'm more interested in the things I'm going to do mm. because that's the adventure. <laughs> that's the doing it's the adventure. But mm. you are sitting there 
on the edge of your seats getting ready to do your thing. And my mission, I'm kind of like the billier in your life, mentoring you to be successful and to bring your ideas mm -hmm. to change the world. So I want to get into this computer and just kind of show you what it was like. So I needed to build a user computer, and I knew that everybody's going to have these, and they were going to be really amazing. And so one of the things I needed on my computer was a keyboard. Now, we can get keyboards anywhere. They cost just a few dollars. But in 1975, that was not so. If you wanted a keyboard, you had to make it. And you had to make it one little switch at a time. You had to make a circuit board. So this is actually the, the keyboard that I used. And if you look on the back, you can see the circuit board where I put the individual keys in, had to solder them in place. Now, <clears throat> I love to invent, so I'm always inventing. And at the time, there were some uh, programs available called word processors. And one of the programs was a little bit popular. So you could create a letter or something on your keyboard. But if you wanted to change the font, or if you wanted to center something, or make it bold, or anything like that, you had to memorize these weird codes that you'd type in that would tell it you want to underline, or you want to change fonts, or whatever. And I said, that is too complicated. So I invented something that I called computomatics. And computomatics was to make computers so much easier to run. And across the top of this keyboard, there are 16 function keys. And if you'd hit one of these keys, a little light would come on on the Billings computer. And, and so I could program these keys to be whatever I wanted to. And then I invented these little overlays. This overlay goes right over the function keys like that. And so now it tells you that if you push F1, you're going to get help and print and line. And so whatever you want to do is just one button and it does it. And I made these overlays for applications like for accounting, you used one. For a spreadsheet, you did another one. You could just pop the overlays on and very easily know what's going on. And it was kind of a neat idea. But now let's get into the research. So I'm going to build this keyboard to go on my computer. I need to put the switches in there. So I need to find a switch. And it turns out there are dozens and dozens of companies that make little switches. And I needed a switch. It's called a momentary switch, which means at the moment you hold it down, it goes down. When you let up, it comes up. On, off, on, off. Some switches, you flip them, they stay off till you flip them on. This one is just momentary. It stays on when you hold it down. So you're typing the key. So I got all the kinds of momentary switches I could. And we built up prototype keyboards. And I said, OK, it's going to be important to have absolutely the best keyboard money can buy, because that'll be one of the reasons why they like my computer. So I started uh, getting volunteers. I started with the secretaries in my own office, and I got other people. And I'd have them come and type on the, on the different keyboards to see what they like. I found out something real interesting. If there's no movement in the key, they didn't like it. They wanted to fill it, move, depress, and they wanted to fill it, stop, so you could tell, OK, I've pushed that letter. And so they call it a tactile keyboard. And uh, out of all of the keyboards that I tested, I'd have them come in, and I'd have them type a letter on it or something and say, how does that keyboard fill? Do you like it? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And I started rating them all. Now think about if, if this was a science fair project, I could take 10 keyboards. I could put them out on a table. I could bring in someone that was going to help me with my experiment. And I could have them try the 10 keyboards and tell me which one they liked best. And then I would be able to. Uh, say that is the best keyboard for most people. And I could also study, why is it better? And so I did this process. It was a big deal, because before I built these, I wanted it to be a real good keyboard. Well, the one that, that easily won, the one that most people, especially 
it seems like the secretaries had the most opinion. Some of the scientists come and say, yeah, it works. <laughs> What's you like better? I don't care, as long as it works. But the secretaries are used to typing many hours a day. They, they get these things going. My secretary at the time, uh, an amazing person named Eileen Dahl, who I really uh, just think she's amazing, but she had really long fingernails, and so she would type kind of with her fingernails up not to break them, and she could type 106 words a minute. With no she, errors, She huh? could type with no errors, because on those typewriters, you couldn't yeah. correct them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are typing it. Like that. But she could type as fast as I could talk, and it was just wow. amazing. So anyway, this keyboard really won, and it happens to use a switch that is made by a company called Cherry Electronics. This is a Cherry switch. <laughs> and Cherry, uh, at that time, and it's been a few years now, I haven't kept up on them, but at that time, they were in Southern California where they made these switches. And the secretaries really loved those particular switches. So I had to design a circuit board to put them in because they didn't make a keyboard that would fit on my computer. I had to make the keyboard myself. And I ordered the switches and I made my prototypes. We got it ready to go into production. And then remember, I ran my first ad. Here is a personal computer. One magazine, one page, one time, 900 checks in the mail for $4,000 each. Over three and a half million dollars came in to me. And most money I'd ever had was probably 500, you know. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was pretty exciting, pretty overwhelming. And it's interesting, I have this computer, but I can build 10 a month. Mm. I sold 900. That was a 90-month backlog, and they all wanted them today. Of course. And so I've, yeah. I've got to really, really, really build these. Now, as I started building them up, I ordered the switches from Cherry, and they said, okay, well, it's gonna take us 36 weeks to get that order of switches. 36 weeks, I, I have people that will cancel their orders, I can't do that. And so um, they said, well, can I get some? And they just wouldn't ship them to me, and everything was designed, they're the best. What do you do? Well, first of all, let's, let's take a full stop here because Every worthwhile project I've ever done is full of those kinds of moments, challenging moments. What you're going to accomplish in this world isn't about what you do when everything works. It's going to be what you do when nothing works. That's what's going to distinguish you from all of the wonderful losers. I remember Bill Lear would say, <laughs> you know, uh, I said, Ted, there's just no way to do it. It's, it's impossible, this is hard. And he says, yeah, that's why you're doing it because if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it's just impossible. He says, so get it done. You know, the, the doable, we do immediately. The impossible, you know, might take till tomorrow. <laughs> and, and he really felt that oh, way. So well, yeah, anyway, that way. <laughs> I needed the switches. I couldn't get them. I uh, wrote them letters. I begged on the phone. I had all these computers, but I needed parts. And there were a few parts that were difficult to get, but these keys were one of the real big ones. And one day I said, I need someone to go down there and just sit in their lobby until they give us some switches. And my secretary's assistant secretary, the one that helped her when I was overloaded with stuff, she says, I'll do that. And I looked at her and she's this really talented, wonderful young woman. And I said, you'll go down there and get a switch? Oh yes, and I won't come home without them. <laughs> you must have taught her well. <laughs> I said, Bless you. And she went. She got on an airplane, she went to California, she went into their lobby, and she would call me. Uh, she said, well, uh, when I first got here, they let me talk to one of their marketing people and said, take the order, you know, there's just so much demand for our switches right now, we have lead times and that. 
And they says, uh, so we're not going to get any. He said, oh, we're going to get them. And I said, how? He said, I don't know yet. <laughs> but I'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> she was there all week. Oh, goodness. What are you doing? I'm just waiting for these switches. We, we don't have any. You're not going to get them for a long time. I know, but I can't go back empty-handed. <laughs> so you're just going to sit in our lobby? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> Please don't make me do that. Well, the end of the week, she came home with luggage of these big boxes full of these switches we got in production. That's pretty tenacious. That's how you build the first personal computer, is you have a person on your team like that. And, you know... Um, it brings up a point that I kind of want to say about being a inventioneer, the kind of a person that pushes the state of the art forward and changes the world. Um, sometimes, and, and this has been hard for me, and some of you are working with me in our organization, it isn't hard for him now, but <laughs> it was hard for me at first. Sometimes it's really hard for me to go up to a person and say, you know, you're a real, real dear friend, but I need to ask you to do something that is so difficult, I really feel bad about asking you, like her. She volunteered, but when she volunteered, I said, well, will you do it? it would re we need these, it would really help us out. And I thought, I could send some different people, but you've gotta be the right person. Mm -hmm. And she was the right person, she was tenacious. Sometimes, to do the projects that you're trying to do, you have to learn to ask people. Ask for the unaskable. It's over the top. When I was getting ready to uh, convert the first car to hydrogen, I had a lawnmower engine running real well on hydrogen, and now I'm jumping up to a car. And my dear father had just purchased a brand new Chevrolet. Brand new. And I thought, that'll look so good at the science fair, the pictures <laughs> on it. So one morning at breakfast, and I've been planning this all night. <clears throat> How's everybody feeling this morning? <laughs> what is it? And I said, Dad, how would you like to be part of science? Oh, goodness. <laughs> what do you want? And I said, I just want to know if I can borrow the new car. And he said, what for? I said, well, I want to take it over to the, the chemistry lab and convert it to run on hydrogen. <laughs> and his eyes got big and serious, and he said, don't you dare touch that car. <laughs> and I, I know he had confidence in me. <laughs> I just know he did. And I said, well, you know, this is... This is science. This is going to change the world. And I need the car. No, sorry. Not a chance. So I went to school, and one of the things that I don't talk much about yeah. is in high school, some person filled out a petition for me to try out to be a cheerleader. Yeah, I was a high school cheerleader. Really? Yeah, embarrassing, yeah. isn't it? Anyway, <clears throat> so I went to school, and one of my cheerleader partners, a guy that uh, named Lynn, had a Volkswagen, and I, Lynn Barker, and I said, Lynn, could I use your Volkswagen for a little experiment? A little experiment. And what kind of experiment? And I said, well, did you know you can run a car on hydrogen? And this would be your chance to put your name in the history book of science. Here I am. I'm asking someone to do something very brave. Because hydrogen, you know, he didn't know if I was going to blow it up, burn it up, or, or make it run. And Lynn thought about it, thought about it. He says, I'll tell you next hour. We shared a locker, by the way. And so next hour I met at the locker and he said, okay, I'm in, what do I do? And I said, well, just bring the car around the back of the chemistry lab tonight after school. So he brought it around and we started tearing the bolts out to remove the gasoline <laughs> carburetor. <laughs> and just as we were getting it off, 
walking around the back of the building and coming up with a very stern look on his face was my father. <laughs> and I don't know if he just felt it or if someone ratted me out or what happened. My father uh, was a mailman. He delivered mail, mail carrier, and he came in that, oh no, Tina. Oh, look at that. Tina has found a picture that I do not want to show. <laughs> uh, we can I, see it I down have here. to tell you a little bit more of the story. When I was a cheerleader, look at that. Um, it was quite an experience. And a couple oh, years that. later, like at the very same school, there was a younger cheerleader, a few years younger than me, that became a cheerleader at the same high school. And then we fell in love at the university and we got married. And so I want to show you a picture both of them? that Tina was not supposed to pull up of me. <laughs> I, I'm the one with Roger on his pocket. And she's the one that is my Where's lovely wife, Tanya. Okay. Tina. And Tina has one other nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Good job, but that's Tina. not part of the Good story. <laughs> My father was a mail carrier, so he had one of these uniforms with a hat and everything. It's kind of official. Uh, one day there was a, a, a flood at the local river there, and they were building up the bank and things. There was a big traffic jam, everyone coming down to see the flood. And, and my dad was coming home from work. He got out of his car, and in that mailman uniform at dusk, he must look just like a police officer. He's like, you go that way. <laughs> so anyway, that guy in uniform came around the corner of the skull, and there we are, and I oh, bust. <laughs> Hi. And I will never forget his exact words. And this shows the love and the confidence he had in me as a blossoming Scientist. high school inventor. He said, if you're going to blow up a oh. car, <laughs> It's going to be my car. And I said, oh, the Chevy? And he said, no, the Model A Ford. He had a Model A that he drove to work. And he said, I'll let you try it on the Model A, which was already an antique. <laughs> and um, uh, as fate would have it, looking back on it, uh, in college, I learned that different engines have different combustion chambers. The, the Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine was what engineers call an L-head engine. It's a shape of the combustion chamber. It has the combustion chamber here, the valves are off to the side. Modern car engines are hemispherical head engines. And what I didn't know is that the way I was converting the engine with my high school science would only work on an L-head engine, which the lawnmower engine happened to be. Oh. But the Model A is an L-head engine, too. If I had tried to convert the Volkswagen, I would have never got it running. Interesting. But the Model A ran first time. That's a blessing. So, you know, it's interesting how things work out. But I asked my father for extraordinary help. I asked my friend for extraordinary help, Lynn Barker. And he helped me get my father inspired. <laughs> And, uh, and thank goodness, uh, mm. before we tried it, we put his carburetor back on and off he went. The idea of the scientific method is that you, you do experiments. An experiment is where you, you get an idea and then you figure out how to test whether or not that idea will work. And you test it. You see what happens, you learn from it, and you plan the next experiment, and you learn in small incremental steps. Someone was asking me just this week, why is a cell so effective? Mm -hmm. Why are students able to learn more math, science, whatever, mm -hmm. in less time than they can even in the best classrooms? Yeah. And the answer is because we have studied the learning process, and it's very, very individual. When one person is ready to move on to the next level, I got it, I got it. You don't want to keep going over and over it because they got it and they just get bored. But if you move forward before the other student has it, 
then they're going to miss it. In a classroom with 30 students, a teacher would like to be able to teach a particular lesson until all 30 students get it. But some are going to be bored and daydream. With computer-based learning, you can give it to everyone at exactly the right pace. And you can develop techniques to make it absolutely the best. In the early days of Billings Computer, when I was starting to build and ship these computers and, and I was just really doing well, I had a gentleman I'd never heard of before that came to see me in my office. And uh, he came in, he was a university professor, and uh, his degree, his doctorate, was in uh, using technology in education. And he said, Roger, your computers could revolutionize learning, could revolutionize education. I said, that's not what they're made for. And he said, but they could do it. I said, I don't get it. And so he explained it to me, how we could give the information to students at their own pace. And we could wait until they really master it. And of course, in, in a cellus, we call a cellus the science of learning. We study how people struggle, how they succeed, and we optimize it so that everyone has absolutely the best experience we possibly can. And students that really apply themselves to a cellus, I mean, learning is work, but they succeed. Well, he went on and he just said, I, I'm starting the company, and it's going to be a company that's going to use computers to teach all subjects. I'm not funded yet. I would like to use your computers, but I can't afford to buy them. Would you be willing to give me some computers to develop my, my ideas and my technology? And in that brief half hour meeting, I saw the vision of how computers could completely revolutionize education. And I'm so thankful to that guy for coming and teaching that to me in the mid 1970s. I thought, wow, this is gonna be good. And I gave him the computers he wanted. I said, good luck, I just really, really hope they work. Well, he went on and started a company called YCAT. Then he became the head of education at IBM. And then in the 1990s, he was hired as the president of a brand new university. Have any of you ever heard of Western Governors University? Yeah, here's a picture of him. This is Dr. Robert Mendenhall, the first president and, and really most people would say the real powerhouse genius behind the successful uh, launch of Western Governors University. He's, he's right now the President Emeritus, which means he's retired, but he's, he's just really, really recognized. I want to put his picture back up one more time. I look at that guy. I haven't talked to him in decades. But that is the man that in our brief moment together gave me the spark of vision that has now resulted in this Ellis Learning System. You know what, I'm gonna track him down and tell him thank you. Uh, and Western Governors, if you know anything about it, they have been able to, uh, to do a wonderful job of educating over 100,000 kids. It's a big university and it's not really that old. And these very same precepts and concepts that we're doing in Acellus to make it a learning accelerator and more effective, uh, he did at the university level most successfully. So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Mendenhall. And we should all, all of us that are benefiting from Acellus, we should be grateful to this great man. We'll have to invite him out here. Maybe we can actually get him to speak at one of our lectures. So. I'm always looking for new visions, for new ideas, for new opportunities, uh, and I'm always looking for the possibility of being able to do better with the technology we have. A big goal that I have in Science Live is that you begin to realize how much power you as a conscious being have to make this world better.
and I've tried having money, I've tried having a lot of recreation, I've tried a lot of things, but for me, the thing that fulfills me, that gives me a fulfilling life, is feeling like I'm making the Word just a little bit better. And I challenge all of you to realize the potential you have. You know, I was, I was pretty ordinary growing up, just like some of you feel like you're ordinary. But uh, through the work of some wonderful people like Bill Lear and others, I was able to begin to believe that I could do something. And when you believe in yourself and you're willing to work hard and be tenacious, only giving up when it's absolutely the right choice, and I don't give up. I never give up what I do as I move on to a more productive <laughs> branch, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give you the last word since you've been so quiet. Would you like to test the keyboard? It's actually really nice keyboards. Mm-hmm. The I Billings computers are still working. Just think about it. Some of these are almost 50 years old, and people are still using I Mine still works. That's a pretty good computer. So Jasper from Texas. That was our final thing. Hi, um, Jasper. I want to thank you for not giving up and pushing for the personal computer. We have what we have today because of you. I just want to say thanks. Well, you know, it really is true that we have what we have because of people that won't give up and keep making the effort. And I, I want to say that my proudest accomplishment is whatever role I had in inspiring all of you to do the absolutely incredible things you're going to do. So study hard. Uh, it's worth it. You know, I don't know if anyone heard, but a rumor has it that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I know for a fact that Mr. Mahomes worked very hard preparing, exercising, toning, training to be able to achieve that. And you need to work just as hard because great things require effort. And learning is something you need. Even if you're just going to be the next Mahomes and make a lot of money throwing footballs around, you're going to have to have this math to know how to invest all that money. <laughs> so uh, study hard and look forward to seeing you next week.